Let us pray as we come now to the service of the word. Almighty God, source of all that is, shine in our lives this day. Banish the darkness of misunderstanding and confusion. Illumine this reading of your word that we may encounter the word made flesh and receive him and believe in him forever. Amen. A reading from the 130th Psalm, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Missy. If you have a a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 12, uh, we'll pick up our reading in verse uh, 22. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 1,515. Um, Unlike Ken's story, I did not have a treehouse to burn down when I was a kid. Um, I would have loved that, but instead I had Legos, and I loved Legos. Raise your hand if you love Legos. We've got, all right, a lot of Lego lovers. Now, when I was five, I loved Legos so much. I loved my Legos. I loved your Legos. I loved my kindergarten class's Legos so much that I accidentally took them home one day. And then not long after, I intentionally took them home, and I got caught stealing Legos. I was afraid to come home because I didn't know how my parents were going to respond. My five-year-old brain couldn't imagine that the bad thing that I had just done could actually be forgiven. And yet years later, as I was talking with a man in his 30s, talking about the guilt he still felt over the event that led to his first marriage ending. The things that he still blamed himself for years later. He told me that he was afraid that now he had a new wife and a son, that God would take away his son to get back at him for the things that he did to his first wife. In the back of his mind was the question, was it unforgivable? It was about that same time that I was sitting with a married couple, hearing the wife tell her husband that she did not love him and hadn't loved him since that one day, that one event, years ago before I even met either of them, that he had basically blocked out of his mind. And since then, the hurt, the unforgiveness, the bitterness had built to the point that that moment as I was sitting before them, nothing that came out of this man's mouth could be interpreted as anything but the most negative, vile intentions by his wife. And I had to ask, has he been forgiven? Or does she consider what happened to be unforgivable? Maybe this morning your conscience is troubled because you've heard that Scripture speaks somewhere about this, this, quote, unforgivable sin. And you're worried if maybe you've actually done that. Uh, Maybe something that you would rather forget. Or maybe something that's happened over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so you're wondering if the statute of forgiveness has actually run out for you. Maybe this morning you're thinking of something that's been done to you. Or maybe you've been thinking of something done by you. Or maybe something done to someone that you love. Was it unforgivable? 
According to Scripture, what, if anything, is truly unforgivable? Well, today as we look at our passage, what we're going to see is Matthew's going to show us two different groups who have two very different responses to Jesus, but we're also going to see two different messages from Jesus. A message about forgiveness, but also a message about ourselves. It's here in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. This is the word of God. Then they brought him, meaning they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. There's a lot going on in this passage, and and frankly, this is more than you can address in one sermon. Uh, Fortunately, a lot of these themes we've actually already looked at in previous sermons in Matthew, but something we see here we haven't seen before, we might not actually know what to do with it, because Jesus here is teaching about forgiveness, but his teaching doesn't come in a vacuum. In fact, it's only properly understood in the context that he speaks it. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the context of that teaching, an idea planted firmly in the world of relationships, and ask, what does this actually tell us about ourselves today? From there, we'll actually be able to look at what Jesus teaches us about forgiveness, and then ask, what would it look like for us to actually live that out today? So first, uh, what's Jesus saying here? And what's the context that helps us understand it? Well, broadly, the context is Matthew 12, where Jesus is performing miracles and he's drawing large crowds, and one person that's brought to him in verse 22 is demon-possessed, so that he cannot see and he cannot speak. And so what happens after he's brought to Jesus is Jesus heals him in such a way that it's obvious to everyone there that he was healed because Jesus had cast out that demon. That, That happened, but the way that people interpreted it, their response to it was very different. 
Uh, In verse 23, the crowd said, can this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? Could the very thing that we witnessed be evidence that the one we've been waiting for is actually here? That was one response, but a verse later we see a very different response from the Pharisees. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Absolute certainty in their verse. It is only by Beelzebub. And rather than a statement of faith, it's actually an accusation of sorcery. A capital crime in their day. Actually, no, it is Satan at work in this man. Don't listen to him. Get away as fast as you can. And I see that, and it reminds me of so many other situations in life, not the demons casting and mute talking, but how many times have I seen two groups that have the exact same experience, they have the exact same evidence in front of them, and come to wildly different conclusions about it? Well, where's that even coming from? Well, there's a backstory. This isn't their first rodeo, uh, Jesus and the Pharisees in, in conversation. It actually goes way back to Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus starts gathering people to himself that are known as sinners. They're notorious, the tax collectors. He even makes one of these spiritual outcasts of his day, one of his disciples, Matthew, the, the author of the gospel. And they didn't like that because they didn't understand. That didn't fit their mold of a good rabbi who cares about the law keeping this type of company. And so they began to become suspicious. They began to look for things that might be off about this Jesus. And so by the time we get to chapter 12, it started to escalate a little bit. Uh, The hurt and the the frustration, the fear have grown to anger and bitterness to the point that they're now looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. They're using their days off to spy on Jesus, to make sure he wasn't doing anything he shouldn't. That's a great use of your day off, isn't it? No, it's not. And then by the time we get to chapter uh, 12, verse 10, We see that they're looking for a reason to accuse him. And later in that chapter, they're actually going to bait him, making it hard for him to not offend them, not to anger them. And by verse 14, the anger and bitterness have built so much in the midst of no forgiveness that by verse 14, they're ready to kill him. Eight verses later, by the time we get to our passage today, the Pharisees can see no right in Jesus, even the most honorable deed would be met with radical suspicion and contempt. But what Jesus says in response to them actually not only speaks uh, to their situation, but in many ways to ours, because he's speaking right into the heart of anger, unforgiveness, and bitterness, and actually tells us as he describes what's going on in them, he actually describes what happens for us so much of the time. He first of all starts in verse 25 and 26 by showing us that bitterness can make us utterly irrational. The emotion takes over and nothing up here starts working right anymore. Uh, Jesus responds to their accusation that this is simply him as an agent of Satan casting out a demon saying, you know, that doesn't make sense. Satan's all about gaining power and influence. And so why did he send me to drive out the person that he has power and influence over It doesn't make sense. It's counterproductive. It would be, in modern terms, if you heard that tomorrow somebody had destroyed the arch downtown. It's been destroyed. It's been leveled. And then you talk to somebody afterwards and they say, I bet it was an inside job. You know what? Those arch people, they've been complaining about not having enough parking for years. I bet they destroyed the arch so they could use that land to build more parking for the arch. And you would say, you are loony. 
Like, that is absolutely absurd. And yet, in various ways, we fall into the same trap because when we're bitter, like the Pharisees were bitter, we're actually willing to believe the absolute worst about somebody, even the absurd. But Jesus goes on in verse 27 to show that bitterness also makes us inconsistent, and because of that, often we create collateral damage around those, not even in conflict, but just those near us. Uh, The Pharisees' disciples got caught up in the wake of their wrath, uh, where he says, well, it's only by Satan that he can cast out demons. Maybe not remembering that, well, we actually have disciples that we train to cast out demons. Are we willing to condemn them as well as sorcerers in order to stay consistent with our accusation of Jesus? Are we willing to throw our own disciples under the bus to hold up our argument against this man? When we're bitter, we'll easily throw people under the bus if it helps us to maintain our version of the story. But Jesus goes on in verse 28 and 29 to point out what's really going on and showing us that our bitterness can blind us. It can obscure our view of reality. Before them, all the Pharisees could see was, well, this is obviously a demonic, you know, spiritual force, not realizing that Satan, who had bound this man, now himself was bound And this man who was blind and mute can now see and speak. But they couldn't see the good that Jesus was doing. They couldn't see a man's life being set free in front of them. Because when we're bitter, we actually don't want to see the good in the person we're bitter with. Because it actually ruins our argument against them. And yet sometimes it can go far enough that we don't want to see good in general. We can't be thankful because to be thankful for one thing means shifting our focus away from the thing that we're bitter about. And we can't have joy. Jesus is describing what's going on with them, but in many ways he's describing what goes on with us. When we're anger, when we're angry, when we're hurt, we lack forgiveness and bitterness starts growing up in us. And bitterness actually works the same way if the offense is real or even if the offense is just perceived like it is with Jesus, the bitterness grows, and eventually the person can do no right in our eyes. And what Jesus says at the end of our passage is that our bitterness might actually say more about us than about the person that we're bitter with. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. In other words, Jesus' good fruit, his good deeds, should have shown them his good source, that he was an agent of the Holy Spirit working to make things right. But the slander that came out of the mouths of the Pharisees, their evil fruit, their evil deeds, actually revealed their evil hearts. You see, when we find ourselves where the Pharisees were, when we're absolutely certain about that which is unknowable, people's inner thoughts or their motives, but we're certain only be evil, that spirit of slander and bitterness, Jesus says, actually says more about us than it does about them. And yet so often, sadly, our response to a person's sin, real or perceived, becomes sin in itself because, as a friend of mine once said, hurting people often hurt people. And yet it's in this context of bitterness that follows real or perceived sins that have not been forgiven, that Jesus gives us a very timely lesson about forgiveness. If we look in verse 31 and verse 32, they basically say the same thing, just rewording from one verse to the next. But it might be confusing because we read this in 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What do we do with that? Scholars and commentators say the first half of the verse speaks to us about an external reality, while the second half speaks to an internal reality. And the first part is actually going to help us understand the second. The first part, every sin will be forgiven. First of all, let's say what that doesn't mean. That's not teaching what some call universalism, uh, that God will uh, always forgive every sin ever committed by anybody and there will never be any judgment. Uh, That doesn't fit with what Jesus is saying in verse 36 and 37 where he says, well, judgment is still real. People will still experience that. Rather, it's saying that all particular sins can be forgiven to those who are forgiven in Christ. The one that's in the back of your mind, the one that you've done, the one that's been done to you. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus says even that one. None are too heinous, too frequent, or too vile to be beyond forgiveness. If we look back at that statement, the first part speaks to that external reality that all particular sins that we commit as those who are trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior can be forgiven. But the second part is speaking about that internal reality that so often trips us up. So so what is that really? What is this unforgivable sin? What is the sin against the Spirit that Jesus talks about? Well, because of what Jesus just said, we know what it can't mean. It can't be some particular sin that we're thinking about right now. It can't be one of the seven deadly sins. It can't be suicide. It can't be the eighth time we've done the thing we're not supposed to do. In fact, it's not even sending the Rams to Los Angeles. I know there's been debate on talk radio about that and sports radio, but it's not even that. So so what is this unpardonable sin? Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer by the context that he speaks it in, because he only gives this statement here and in parallel accounts of this. And the person that he talks to, the people he's talking to, are those who have seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit and refused the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse, uh, chapter 16 of, of John's Gospel, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict us of the reality of our sin, of our need for righteousness, and the reality of God's coming judgment. It's been described as the spotlight ministry, shining a light on the truth about who God the Father is, who is God the Son, and who are we, including the reality of our sin. And the exorcism, the healing they just saw, that would have been the evidence that Jesus came from God, that this was the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And yet what happens here, you might say, is that the one whose ministry it is to tell us when we're wrong, to shine the light on the truth of of our sin and our need and who Jesus is, turn the lights on full blast. And in response, the Pharisees covered their eyes. They dug in their heels. If you want a definition of what is the sin against the Holy Spirit, it's not simply not believing but it's refusing to consider that even an option, even in the face of clear evidence, refusing the ministry of the Holy Spirit to tell you that you're wrong. They say it's only by Beelzebub that he can do this. And in verse 34, Jesus says that their words actually reveal the evil in their hearts. It goes beyond bitterness. There's something else at work in them. Tim Keller, commenting on this same passage, says that The issue with the unforgivable sin and what the Pharisees are doing here isn't so much that their sins are unforgivable, but that their hearts are unrepentable. Their words merely revealed the internal reality of their hearts. 
Jesus says all external sins can be forgiven, but if you resist the work of the Holy Spirit internally to lead you to repentance, no sin is forgivable because you'll never actually seek that. But remember, the people that Jesus is confronting here are Pharisees. These are very, very religious people. And yet, when you see yourself as a religious person, as someone whose relationship with God is based on what you've done and your righteousness and your goodness, you actually don't have as much permission to see yourself as a real sinner with real sin that has real needs, that needs real forgiveness. So we slip into denial. We resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit when he's telling us that we're wrong. Or maybe we just redefine sin in such a way that we're never actually guilty of it. And the process, find that we've actually placed ourselves, just like the Pharisees, outside of God's forgiveness. Willing to believe the most vile things about other people, but not willing to believe the same about ourselves. Here's what that means for you this morning. If you've been concerned, if you've been racked with guilt, wondering if you've actually committed the unforgivable sin, the fact that you're actually considering that means you probably haven't committed the unforgivable sin. And because you would be blind to it, you wouldn't even consider it an issue. So what do we do with that? What do we do with what Jesus is teaching us about the nature of forgiveness? How do we live this out? Well, if wronged, if you've been wronged, it starts with heart forgiveness. Heart forgiveness. That's what uh, Jesus describes in Mark 11, verse 25. He says, whenever you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. No qualifications other than someone has done something wrong to you and you hold it against them, therefore, forgive them. And the reason why Jesus can say that is in light of God's forgiveness of you. This says that all sins are forgivable. And because of that, if we consider someone else's sins to be unforgivable, who are we to tell Jesus that he's wrong? Do we believe that our standards of righteousness and holiness are actually higher than his? Now, offering this heart forgiveness, forgiving another person before God in your heart, releasing them from that debt at the heart level before God in light of his forgiveness of you, that does not mean you're denying the offense. Actually, it means the opposite. You're actually looking straight into the heart of the ugliness of what has been done to you and choosing to treat that person's sin against you the way God treats your sin against him. There's a story of two monks who were wrongfully imprisoned and treated for years. They were one day released, and years after that, they finally reunited, and the first monk asked the second, have you forgiven them for what they did to us? The second monk says, no, I will never forgive them. To which the first monk replied, well then, you're still their prisoner. Heart forgiveness doesn't release the offended, uh, the offender from their responsibility. Heart forgiveness releases the offended from their bitterness. And if we skip that part, if we skip the heart forgiveness part, our forgiveness of them before God and God alone, bitterness is likely to build up in our hearts to the point that we'll be blinded to anything good in the other. And in fact, we might even start seeing evil that's not even there because it fits the narrative of our bitterness. That's the baseline. That's the bare minimum, but that's also the beginning to reconciliation, and full reconciliation goes a step further. Jesus says in uh, Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Forgiveness starts with heart forgiveness. But if there is repentance, it continues in reconciliation through what you might call expressed forgiveness. Expressed forgiveness literally means what it says. It's actually saying, I forgive you because you've forgiven them before God and now in light of their confession and repentance, you want them to know that they're forgiven. It's demonstrated by treating people as if the offense had never occurred. Not bringing it back up when you want to win an argument or win a point or or try to make them feel bad again. And what this does is it removes that awkwardness in your relationship with them. The same way that we do the weekly assurance of grace after you've confessed your sins to remove that awkwardness between you and God, wondering, has God really forgiven me? We have that part of our worship service so you can be reminded that the answer is yes. Now, I know what some of you are thinking is, well, does this mean that I'm trusting the person anymore, that I have to trust them? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, If uh, somebody uh, used to help you carry your eggs from here to there and kept on dropping them and breaking them every single time, you can forgive them for every single egg that they dropped, but you're probably not going to ask them to carry your eggs anymore. Now, if five, six, eight years later, you see that they're able to carry eggs quite faithfully now for everybody but you're not willing to trust them with your own eggs. That probably says more about your trust issues than it does about how much they're actually trustworthy. Just want to throw that in as an aside because I know that always comes up when we talk about forgiveness. Well, what if the shoe, though, is on the other foot? What if actually another one feels wronged by you because you actually wronged them? The scripture is clear. You offer them confession. James 5.16, confess your sins one to another. A confession just means agreeing with the other person. When we do confession, we're just agreeing with them about what was wrong so we can remove the controversy that's part of that awkwardness between the offender and the offended. And here's what good confession looks like. First, it's specific. You're actually being clear about what you are confessing, not, I did bad, will you forgive me? It's like, what bad? I mean, what actually are you owning here? And that's the second part about forgiveness. It's specific, but it owns your own part. It's not saying, I'm sorry that I hated you and said bad things that time when you were mean and spiteful and and manipulative and conniving. And That's just an accusation couched as confession. No, it's owning your part and your part alone. And Jesus finally says in Matthew 5 that confession is urgent. He says, if you're offering your sacrifice and you realize that someone has something against you, which means you probably owe them confession, stop, go do that, then come back. Because reconciliation is that valuable and that powerful, nothing should delay it. But that brings us to the really complicated one. What if another one feels wronged by you, but you didn't actually do anything wrong? What if it was an accident? Or what if it was simply a misunderstanding or or they simply misjudged the situation? We actually find our answer in Romans 12, 15 because either way you're dealing with somebody who is grieving. And Romans 12, 15 says, Grieve with those who grieve. Offer them compassion. You don't always owe confession, but you always owe compassion. Grieving with those who grieve because it grieves you to see their grief, especially if you know that you caused it, even if it was only an accident, even if it was only misunderstanding. Uh, Dr. David Ferguson tells a story about a sixth grade teacher named Joyce who experienced this. 
Uh, one of her students had a severe learning disability, which required on her part um, extra uh, time uh, tutoring, special encouragement, uh, modification of her teaching plans, just to try to help catch the student up. This student's mother, not long after, sent a very angry, accusatory, critical letter about her, claiming that she was incompetent and that she didn't actually care about the special needs of her child. And she didn't send it to the teacher. She sent it directly to the principal without ever confronting the teacher about it. Now, obviously, this mother of this child uh, was hurting. She, she loved her child, and it hurt her to see her child suffering uh, so much, struggling in the classroom. But in her pain, she did what so many of us often do. She made false assumptions and then acted on them by attacking Joyce's credibility and her character. When they finally did meet face-to-face, Joyce did not what we expected. She actually uh, avoided getting into an argument her competency or her care for the child. She avoided that argument. But at the same time, she wasn't going to uh, agree with the woman's false accusations. What she did instead was she offered compassion to a mother with a child with special needs who has her child in a school that has very limited resources for children with special needs. She put her arm around her. She grieved with her. She said, I hurt for you. Because I see your child hurting, too. And I wish I could do more. In matters like Joyce's, confession would actually confuse the matter more. And actually arguing or defending yourself in that situation wouldn't actually relieve the pain being felt on either side. But as Ferguson goes on, when we show empathy for another person's pain, even if it's based on a misunderstanding, we get more of God's grace and more of God's comfort into circulation God can do wonders with that. In fact, it's when somebody did that years ago, when I was arguing with them about how they were misusing the word of God. You know, know, this is not what the Bible is saying. You're twisting God's word. And they came back and they said, you really love God's word, don't you? I said, yes. And he goes, and you really wouldn't want to see anybody representing God's word, would you? I'd go, that's right. Because that would really hurt you to see that, because you love God and his word. I go, well, yeah. Has that happened to you before? Have you seen people misusing God's word? And I said, yeah, it has. And they said, I'm really sorry that happened to you. What? I mean, but hey, but I'm mad at you and I'm supposed to... I was undone. And it actually helped me see that I was actually misreading the scriptures, not them. And yet, compassion actually undid me and was more powerful than the way that I'm sure they wanted to respond. But what we did is we experienced together the truth of Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And frankly, we prefer stirring up anger with our harsh words because we forget that we're not Jesus. Jesus knew people's hearts and their motives, but we don't. Jesus knew that every accusation of his sin was always false, but that's not the case with us. You see, to presume that we know with absolute certainty another one's evil motives sadly makes us more like Jesus' accusers than one of his followers. And with that being said, what actually might keep us today from offering true confession and true compassion in the midst of our conflicts?
Well, one might be that because we think they don't owe confession, we think we don't owe them anything. Or we're afraid that if we offer compassion, that'll be interpreted as admitting guilt. And yet, that's not how we act towards those that we love. Uh, Think about what would happen today if you're standing at a kitchen counter at lunch, and as you're backing away from the counter, you hear a scream, and you realize you just stepped on the foot of a two-year-old wearing no shoes. They're screaming, they're crying, they're looking at you like... And you, do you turn around and say, hey, you know I didn't mean to do that. That's not my fault. Don't go blaming me for, you know, your being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Put yourself together, kid. You know I didn't actually do wrong. You don't do that. You reach down and you give them a hug. You embrace them and you say, mommy's sorry. Daddy's sorry. I'm sorry. And by that, you're not saying, I sinned. Will you forgive me? Because, you know, you didn't actually mean to do it. What you're saying is, it grieves me to see you hurting And because it grieves me so much, I grieve with you. And the way that I express that is by offering compassion. That's how we treat those that we love, even if we didn't intend to harm them, even if we were innocent in the process. But another reason we probably don't do this is we realize that it's costly. Actually owning our sins in confession or actually entering their pain in compassion. And yet Jesus could have said the same thing about purchasing our forgiveness. It's costly, and I don't want to do it. And yet that wasn't how Jesus responded. You see, what Jesus is doing in this passage gives us a foretaste of what he would do later on the cross. If you look at verse 29, Jesus says that this healing is actually evidence that Satan, that the accuser, the one who binds us in our guilt, has actually himself been bound. And that's how the man before them was able to be set free. And the way Jesus does that for you, the way he sets you free, is by taking your place, by taking on your guilt. So on the cross, he's the one who would be bound. He's the one that's falsely accused. He's the one who is misjudged. And yet it's from the cross that he would be able to say, Father, forgive them. And the way we experience that forgiveness is by faith. In verse 37, Jesus says, By your words, you will be acquitted. In other words, by your words, you will be justified. What words? What have the people been saying? Back in verse 23, the people said, Could this be the Son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Is this actually the one that we've been waiting for that will free us, that will liberate us? You see, just as the Pharisees' words revealed their hearts, the people's words about Jesus revealed that their hearts were beginning to believe in him, the one who would offer his life and his death as a substitute for theirs. And if your faith today is in Jesus Christ, Jesus says all your sins will be forgiven, which means... This actually gives you freedom to consider just how deep your sins might go, to look underneath the surface and see what might be there that you don't want to see or admit. Maybe greed, maybe pride, maybe racism, maybe rage, maybe selfishness. Because whatever you find underneath the surface, you're willing to look because you know whatever you find there, if you confess it, it will be forgiven. And when you believe that, it actually empowers you to forgive others. You see, this is very different from the religion of the Pharisees because, as Keller says, religion in general creates people who are uh, not really able to believe that they could really do bad things. And so when they see other people do bad things, they're not very forgiving. In fact, that often makes them be the most bitter people you can ever meet. But the gospel of Jesus Christ 
makes us very forgiving. As we close, um, we've got a picture here on the screen of a guy named Matt Watzel. Uh, He's a firefighter there. Um, And back in October 2006, Matt was driving home from work uh, when he fell asleep at the wheel. He crossed over the median and ran into another car and was woken up by the sound, which he called the most god-awful sound that he'd ever heard. The other car that he ran into was driven by the person in this next picture on the left. Her name is June Fitzgerald. Uh, June was in the vehicle with her daughter, who survived. But she was also seven months pregnant, expecting a son. And neither June nor her unborn son made it. Racked with pain, her husband, Eric, there on the right, who had just lost his wife and his unborn son, was torn up by grief, but nevertheless thought that as a youth pastor, that he needed to practice what he had preached about forgiveness. And so it started by actually pleading for a lesser sentence uh, for Matt, even though he had just cost him his wife and his unborn child. Two years later, with Matt not in prison, having avoided a harsher sentence because of what was offered, they ran into each other, Matt and Eric, at a grocery store. We can show the next slide. Over the next few years, they began to get together because Eric, the one who had been wounded, initiated the reconciliation by saying, I want to be in your life. Matt was dealing with a lot of guilt, overwhelmed by what he had done. And yet, through that process of reconciliation together, through the friendship that was born as they met regularly for years, Matt would later say, I can honestly say, that I, without his friendship, I don't know where I would be today. Next slide. Over the years of their friendship with Eric and Matt, Matt actually himself became a family man, had a wife, and now they have a son. I know for some of us that just seems weird, that Matt, the one who took the lives of Eric's wife and Eric's son, would one day have his own wife and son, and be free to do so only because Eric showed him forgiveness. And yet it was long before Eric and Matt ever met, long before that October morning, that God gave his son so that Eric could be forgiven, so that Matt could be forgiven, so that you could be forgiven. As Eric says, you forgive as you've been forgiven. May the same be true of us today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of your forgiveness, of your grace. Father, where our hearts are racked with hurt from previous wrongs, racked with bitterness, with unforgiveness, racked with grief for the things that have happened. Father, we ask that you would do a work of healing in our hearts, rooted in the fact that we receive your forgiveness in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.